I know we lost some folks because of the confusion in time zones. Thank you all for, if you were able to figure that out. <laughs> um, if you were on the East Coast at noon, uh, that was your normal time. And now that Arizona is now in uh, Pacific time, that's one o'clock Eastern. So sorry about that, friends, if that threw you off a little bit. But we are glad you are here for uh, the, the third to last uh, session of the Malachot. Uh, just a reminder that we hope you'll continue with the 40 greatest debates in Jewish history, starting exactly at the same time uh, on the week right after this ends. So, um, and I'll give this group a sneak preview that the first debate is Hillel Shammai. That ought to be obvious, but we're going to explore the debates of Hillel Shammai in the first session. If you have suggestions for other great debates, we would love to hear. But uh, so far, I've got a list of 53 that I'm trying to narrow down to 40. Uh, which originally was a list of 68. <laughs> That's it. That's the we don't normally hear except for the night up, right? So that's fun to <laughs> that's fun to tap into. Who I mean, who made up these melodies? It's unbelievable. Like what a melody. It's unbelievable. So uh, friends, let's start with a little poll here. A little poll to get uh, into the groove of Pesach. Hard to believe it's the next a week from this Saturday night. It's next week. Which of the Arba Banim of the four children resonates most for you? The wise child, simple child, the wicked child, the one who doesn't know how to ask. I'm all of them. I'm none of them. <laughs> hmm, let's see here. Okay, take a few more seconds to submit your vote. Okay, let's see the results here. The wise child, 22% of you. The simple child, 11%. Wicked, none of you. Good, okay, very good. We're in a good company here. The one who doesn't know how to ask. Good, we all have lots of questions. All of them, okay, 67%. None of them, zero, okay. Um, so, uh, you know, it's interesting. Back in the day, I guess just a generation ago, um, people prided themselves on calling themselves a simple Jew. I'm a simple Jew. Like people wanted to be a simple Jew. Um, and, uh, I, and that kind of resonates for me still. I, you know, I like being a complex Jew. You know, oh, and it's very complicated. Jewish ideas and Jewish history and identity. What am I really? I like the complexity, but I like the simple too. I like the simple ideas. Okay, so, um, so, so anyways, thanks for that. I love the Arba Bonim and thinking about... Um, all of those as part of ourselves and um, uh, and how we evolve in the roles we play in our lives. Okay, friends, igniting, igniting. Our 37th malacha is perhaps the quintessential malacha, ma'avir, igniting a flame. When one thinks of malacha, one often thinks of the act of lighting a flame. It is a malacha that the Torah addresses explicitly. You shall not light a fire in any of your dwelling places on the day of Shabbat. In fact, 
when Shabbat ends for most of us, it is the first malacha we do when we light a Havdalah candle, representing that Shabbat is officially over. And yet, Ma'avir is about so much more than striking a match or igniting a lighter. Ma'avir is perhaps the most important act we do in our lives, lighting up souls around us. We have the ability to bring negative energy to others and to drag others down. But we also have the option of Mavir to lift up, uh, lift others up with energy, encouragement, and light. We don't just light up others from a place of charity. Rather, when we use our energy to elevate our spiritual consciousness toward the unity of all life, we realize how interdependent we all are. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Wright wrote, as long as there is poverty in the world, I can never be rich, even if I have a billion dollars. As long as diseases are rampant and millions of people in this world cannot expect to live more than 28 or 30 years, I can never be totally healthy, even if I just got a good checkup at Mayo Clinic. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. This is the way our world is made. No individual or nation can stand out boasting of being independent. We are interdependent. What a profound message. We've heard this so many times before, the idea of how interconnected we are, that no one is free until we are all free. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory wrote in his final book, A Free Society is a Moral Achievement. Over the past 50 years in the West, this truth has been forgotten, ignored, or denied. This is why liberal democracy is at risk. Social freedom cannot be sustained by market economics and liberal democratic politics alone. It needs a third element, morality, a concern for the welfare of others, an active commitment to justice and compassion, a willingness to ask not just what is good for me, but what is good for all of us together. It is about us, not me, about we, not I. The market will be merciless. Politics will be deceiving, divisive, confrontational, and extreme. People will feel anxious, uncertainty, fearful, aggressive, unstable, unrooted, unloved. They will focus on promoting themselves instead of the one thing that will give them lasting happiness, making life better for others. People will be, by historic standards, financially rich but emotionally poor. Freedom itself will be at risk from the far right and the far left the far right dreaming of a golden age that never was, the far left dreaming of a utopia that never will be. And so friends, he argues here that while the right thinks that the key to a successful society is the free market, and the left thinks the key to a successful society is, is big government, that actually while there are, is a role to play for the market, a role to play for government, that it is in the realm of the individual and in the realm of the community and in the realm of morality, that we will ultimately find happiness and success collectively. Oftentimes we can, we can feel like community when we're feeling great and celebratory, but when we're suffering, we may choose isolation alone. Suffering, however, can be a bridge to human connection like no other. James Baldwin, who is recently gaining more attention, wrote, I can only tell you about yourself as much as I can face about myself. 
And this has happened to everybody who's tried to live. You go through life for a long time thinking, no one has ever suffered the way I've suffered. My God, my God. And then you realize, you read something or hear something, and you realize that your suffering does not isolate you. Your suffering is your bridge. Many people have suffered before you. Many people are suffering around you and always will. And all you can do is bring, hopefully, a little light into that suffering. Enough light so that the person who is suffering can begin to comprehend his suffering and begin to live with it and begin to change it, change the situation. We don't change anything. All we can do is invest in people with the morale to change it for themselves. How much richer we can be when we feel connected to all beings that suffer. And we can also experience a radical elevation when we feel love, responsibility, and respect for all beings. Once again, not charity, but a pathway to happiness. Rabbi Moshe Kodavero, known as the Ramak, that's why in Hebrew there, at his kever, at his grave, it says Haramak, Rabbi Moshe Kodavero. He writes, one should respect all creatures, recognizing in them the greatness of the creator, who formed man with wisdom and whose wisdom is contained in all creatures. You should realize that the, they greatly deserve to be honored since the former of all things, the wise one who is exalted above all, cared to create them. If one despises them, God forbid, it reflects upon the honor of their creator. This may be likened to an expert goldsmith who fashions a vessel with great skill. But when they display their work, one of the people begins to mock and scorn it. How angry that goldsmith would be. For by disparaging their handiwork, one disparages their wisdom. Similarly, it is evil in the sight of the Holy One. Be blessed if any of their creatures is despised. This is the meaning of the verse. How many are your works, O Lord? The psalmist did not say how vast, but how many. The Hebrew word rav, many, also denotes importance as in the phrase Rav Beso, Rav Beto, meaning of high status. Since you imbued them all with your wisdom, your workers are important and great, and it benefits one to contemplate the wisdom in them, not the spirit. This is just a reminder of how glory towards another person, towards another being, is glory towards the creator. Once again, how the ethical and the theological are intertwined how in the oneness of all life, the oneness of all being, we find ourselves, we find the other, and we find the capital O, other as well. We lift others up when they need it and ask for it. We also seek to lift others up when they don't know that they need it and aren't asking for it. Consider the Israelites in, in slavery in Egypt that we'll be thinking so much about in just a week and a half. They never cry out for freedom. Their cry is only a verbal expression of their immediate experience at the moment of that cry. An experience of pain born of the difficulty of their lives in an enslaved status. They don't demand liberation. They just cry from their burden. God hears not their request, but their pain. So too we can rise to meet the moment when we hear the cries. This requires that we wake up from a slumber of isolation and self-focus requires that we view ourselves in the light that will illuminate our reality as responsive moral agents. 
Recently, during a boring routine moment while I was in my car, my headspace returned to that of a carefree teenager. You ever had that moment? <laughs> Where for a, a brief moment, you um, experience the world as a teenager once again? I tried to remember why I felt so free as a teenager driving a car. Like everything was possible in that headspace. It's been so long, not so long, but it's been long since I was a teenager that I'd forgotten what it felt like at all. My windows were rolled down, the music was turned up, and I was singing at the top of my lungs without a care in the world. Why did I feel that way? Why had I not felt that way in so long? And then I realized more mortality. When I was a teenager, I really did not know people who had passed away. Very few. I witnessed little death of loved ones and friends. I could count them on one hand. On some level, as only a teenager could, I believed I was immortal. Yes, there were strange cases of young deaths I had heard about, but they were mostly distant. Yes, there were elderly people who died, but for me, that was a whole lifetime away. Yes, I must not have believed I could ever actually be an older person. Today, understanding the depth and fragility of compassionate relationships and empathic to the national and global human condition, not to mention my own aging and the aging of those I love, means that mortality is so much more tangible to me. It's so much more real and ever-present. It has finally entered my mind as a concrete possibility more than an abstraction meant for others. It is a gift to reach consciousness of the finite time we all are allowed to enjoy. This consciousness is not only something we can appreciate in that it gives us personal perspective, but also because we are in the world of compassionate relationships, care, grief, and interconnectivity. It was nice to be naive and oblivious about the effects of mortality years ago, but given the choice, I'd rather live with an with all of us together, recognizing our individual limitations in terms of the quality and also the quantity of our respective lives, but at the same time, recognizing our collective strength. We know that at every celebration of a milestone in someone's life, there is someone else dying. And at every death, there is someone somewhere celebrating. When we think of mortality, we shouldn't think of its inevitable conclusion. That's a distraction from the bigger picture. Picture, Instead, let us ride this journey together in the messy, productive turmoil that constitutes the ups and downs of life. The Kutzka Rebbe asks, if the heavenly gates of tears are never closed, why are the gates, why are there gates at all? Again, if the heavenly gates of tears are never closed, why should there be gates at all? I'd suggest that a mere projection of the gates around our hearts. If we can learn to ignite, that is to light up our hearts and break through the boundaries of our emotional limitations, we can then break through the gates of heaven, igniting the cosmos. Let's keep reading and learning and writing and building. But please let's add prayer, meditation, reflection, therapy and healing practices to our individual and collective agenda. We should lead focused on the light without naivete of crises, of course, rather than leading through, leading primarily focused on fear. 
The Bnei Yisasker teaches, what is Shabbat? And answers, it is the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, a name that is complete in every aspect. He then connects this point to mercy. There are 13 different ways of fully spelling the name of God, and that they correlate with the 13 attributes of mercy. Indeed, friends, embracing Shabbat is becoming more godlike, more merciful, more kind and gentle. On Shabbat, we can reflect on the unseen energy found in spiritual light. We can reflect on how much more powerful than our words and deeds is the emanation of our being. Our energy we put out can ignite others around us. Healing and recuperating on Shabbat and on other days can enable us to be sure we're putting out the type of energy, the types of warmth and light we do want to be generated. And so with Malacha 37 of Ma'avir igniting, we ask ourselves before we leave home, before we connect with another, how am I turning on my own light in order that it can emanate outwards? To share once again, Rabbi Shlomo Ibn Gabriel of the, I believe, 13th century Kabbalist, who said, if you want to, if you want to uh, light a flame in someone else, we don't try to seek their flame. Rather, we turn on our own flame. Doing so, trust that process, that it will catch fire. So friends, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear from you. Um, good, and Steve, we don't normally see you, so it's nice to see you, Steve. Very nice. Um, and nice to see everyone who we can see, and if we can't see you, we understand. So friends, feel free to unmute yourself. We'd love to hear your questions or thoughts. Or anything you want. Rabbi Shmuley, I've got a question. Oh, good. Hi, Eric. Hi. <laughs> Uh, this has been really phenomenal. A lot of, I've got a lot of questions, but there's one I'm going to start off with just so I give time for everyone else. The notion of, of, of igniting, as we know, whether the physical or the intangible, uh, as you know, there is a limitation of fuel when one lights, you know, the candles that last for a certain amount of times because of the amount of limit of the physical of wax. And the same can be internal, um, igniting that thirst in that quest to, to better ourselves or to perform uh, a mitzvah. My question is what um, have you learned from your, from your understanding of, of igniting that flame? It, it seems like we have to keep, keep lighting it continuously to keep, that, uh, to keep it going. And sometimes the flame comes out, sometimes we have to keep um, igniting it, keep, uh, keep it uh, not distinguished, but keep it uh, lit. What uh, have you seen to be in Jewish texts and philosophies that has been recommended to people who want to keep lighting that internal flame to keep it going and not let it dis, uh, distinguish, um, extinguish? I love that question, Eric. Thank you so much. And um, after sharing a few reflections, I'd love to hear if others have some as well. If you feel free to write in the chat. And let me start with the generic answer which um, as someone who appreciates the complexity and diversity of the human condition, which is to say naturally that it's different for all of us. Um, each of us needs a different kind of fuel and fuels up differently. Um, that said, we know that 99.9% .9 of the human condition is relatively similar. Human behavior is relatively predictable and the human condition it, uh, throughout history and throughout historical contexts and cultural contexts um, is more similar than different. And so there are commonalities and there is wisdom to learn from those commonalities. And so I don't think the only answer is that 
Um, it depends on the person. Um, and so um, it is interesting to reflect on the debate of Hillel and Shabbai. Do we light our candles going up on Hanukkah or down? Right? Of course, all of us light going up, right? Because that's Hillel. But Shabbai lights going down. Hillel, Shabbai says you light eight candles of Hanukkah on the first night. And each night you light one less, right? And he bases that based on Corbinot sacrifices that are offered less each day over Sukkot. Um, but Hillel says, no, no, you have to increase light in the world. You can't decrease. You light the first on the first night. You keep increasing. That's what we need to do in the world is always increase, always increase light, not God forbid, decrease. And so, uh, and, and there we deal with it with the miracle of fuel that lasts because indeed part of this is miraculous. Resilience Resiliency, um, survival, uh, fueling is, in many cases, miraculous. It's not natural that we sustain ourselves. People get depressed. People get down. People burn out. In fact, the percentages I read recently of burnout are astronomical, the level of burnout. And people think, oh, burnout, I need a vacation. Now, vacation doesn't, doesn't respond to burnout. Um, burnout actually requires a li major lifestyle change. It's not justification. Um, uh, empirically, they have found. Uh, it, is, it is the way we live, and it's not just working less or working more or working differently. It's a very complex phenomenon. And so it is actually miraculous when we do stay fueled, when we do remain um, fueled. And, um, and so one thing, uh, I mean, there's, there's many human answers to share, but one Jewish answer to share, which of course is human, but also uh, something different than just human, is that I think one shift in how we think about Jewish rituals is not just, are they meaningful? Am I fulfilling them? But actually, do they fuel me, right? How do I do a Passover Seder, not just to do a Passover Seder, but in a way that fuels me? How do I engage in prayer not just in a way that's traditional or progressive or Jewish or meaningful, but once again, acts of prayer that actually fuel me. And so I think the rituals can be viewed as gifts towards us to fuel us. Now, that, that was a, I've shared this before, but this was a big shift for me because I used to think of prayer as service. I'm serving God. It's an avodah. It's work, right? And yes, there is a discipline involved there. But the other way to view it is, this is a way to fuel me. Um, now, the other answer I want to share, which I think is also profoundly Jewish, is um, that it is collective. It is collective that um, uh, just as we share light and we don't lose light when we share light, it is also true that while light is infinite, that fuel is finite. And that is why we have to fuel each other. Um, and, uh, and do that not based on reciprocity, but uh, that others will fuel us, but in faith, in faith that in fuel, sharing fuel with others that we will be fueled um, as well. And, um, and here I continue to believe, as we saw in Rabbi Sachs, what he wrote over there, that kindness, our belief in, in the power of kindness and care for others as a means to fuel ourselves. Again, we don't do it purely out of self-dependence, out of self-survival, uh, um, but um, out, of, out of love. And yet the belief that love actually fuels us. And this has definitely been my experience um, in many ways. And so um, this, is, uh, this is why I think uh, that our culture that can often be so selfish and full of greed is also a, a very sad culture. 
um, because it's not, it's not primarily a given culture of resources, of time, of love. Um, the happiest people I know really are giving people. And so that's the first bit I want to say. That, yeah, it, it, that's really all I want to say to your great question there, um, that it is diverse um, and, um, and the rituals can be there for that. Can't, kindness can be there for that. We can fuel each other. And the last thing I'll say, just on a personal note, to add some complexity to it, is that sometimes the things I care about the most are not things that fuel me. And so I don't think the only measure of what we do with our life is the things that fuel us. There are things I do that matter that actually drain me. Um, and I don't, and, 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 and I try not to feel guilt about that. Oh, why do I still feel so bad when I do this thing that matters to me? For example, a lot of my time with my young children um, is meaningful, but not fun. It drains me. It exhausts me. It's challenging. It's frustrating. You know, I love them dearly. It's meaningful, but it doesn't fuel me. It drains me. I want to go to bed after, after all this. Um, and so there are some things in life. If there's work I do. I would say the bulk of the work I do it organizationally drains me, right? When I'm learning with you all, oh, this fuels me. I love this. I get to see your faces and I get to share ideas and hear your ideas. This fuels me. But most of my time, oh, we're doing websites and email blasts and trying to raise money to sustain all of this and, you know, management and all these things I don't want to do, right? And it drains me. Honestly, it drains me. But, but I do it because it's important. It's important. So some things are important, but they drain us. And that's okay. And other things, thank God, they can be important and meaningful and fuel us at the same time. So that was, that was a very lovely reflection there. Okay, let's, thank you, Eric. Let's hear from someone else. Um, I'm struck by the use of light and symbolism. You go back in the beginning and God creates day and night and day uh, meaning light is mm. good. And all through everything we've read, the concept, there's light at the end of the tunnel in regard to the pandemic. We are always heading towards light. Yes, I love it. Beautiful. So, you, so just to, as a reminder, God creates light in the creation story before God creates the sun, right? And so obviously we're not dealing with solar light when God creates light. We're dealing with or haganus, the, the light that is hidden at creation right. um, and accessible. And you're right, Eileen, that the, that the light represents hope. It's the light at the end of the tunnel, as we see in COVID, as we see in many challenges in our life. Um, and, um, and this is a light that is accessible, that is accessible to us. Um, you know, both the light at the end of the tunnel, tunnel the light that is within. And this is, this is um, the top three themes in spirituality, which is completely ubiquitous um, throughout faith traditions and spiritual traditions. The notion of light as, as a spiritual practice, there is no spiritualist that I know of or faith tradition that I know of that doesn't engage with such an idea as, as a transformative spiritual practice. Lighting Shabbos candles. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Lighting Shabbos candles, lighting, lighting Hanukkah candles, lighting Yartzai candles, lighting uh, uh, Habdallah candles. Uh, this as a, as a practice. Um, yes. Thank you. Uh, yes, Andrea. So um, I think that was a great question about how do we rekindle the light and the problem of burnout. I think that um, 
you know, well, what's the source of the life? It's the divine energy, right? We're trying to be open to that, but we're in the body. And this is an issue that becomes increasingly important as we get older. We need to restore, we need to recharge, we need to take care of ourselves on our spiritual path. And prayer is just not enough. We have to eat, we have to walk, be in nature. And all of that is a source, right? The divine source to recharge. But I think that um, how to stay grounded is also equally as important um, in the spiritual path. And certainly as we get older, the downtime and the restorative time becomes even more important. Beautiful, beautiful. That's very powerful. You know, and that also reminds me, um, you know, of um, of finding the purity. You know, we were talking about the simple child and the Seder and my love of simple Jews in addition to complex Jews. And um, and some, in some ways, when we get older, we get more complex, right? But in some ways, we can become more simple because the world becomes more illuminated, becomes more clear in what life is about. And... Um, it says, Nishmat Adam Ner Hashem, that it says in Mishle in Proverbs, that the soul of a person is God's candle, right? What a, what a fascinating idea that the way that God sees in the world is through the light of the human soul. It's almost like divinity sees the world through, through passing through us and, and, and vice versa, passing through our own inner light is a way to extend, uh, to extend outwards. And so this light can give us a clarity give us a clarity it can give us a purity it can give us uh it can give us vision it can give us sight beyond what we can currently see oh yeah by the way with cheryl you know you know as jews you know jews are full of so many neuroses right um but what one of our neuroses is uh when the kids say oh we're praying for rain in america and then we explain to them, no, no, the rain that we pray for does not fall here, right? It falls over there. Okay, it's okay to pray for rain here too, right? But we're praying for a rain over there. Or so too, when we explain, no, no, a day, a Jewish day starts at night, not when you wake up, right? That, that's a Jewish day. That God creates night and then day. And so that's that's a day. And that's why Shabbat begins at night. But actually, it is interesting that one of the literalists among the Mepharshim, among the biblical commentators. And this sounds heretical in the Jewish tradition, but he actually, um, he actually reinterprets that, that text to say that a, a Jewish day actually does begin in the morning, uh, based on a reinterpretation of the text there, uh, that it does begin, it does begin with, with, with light rather than with darkness. Um, but that is, it is fascinating to think that, that, that in our tradition, a day begins with the world getting darker rather than more light. Um, and just a reminder of this amazing midrash, which I think I quoted in one of our first malachot, and you've maybe heard before, but the midrash says that Adam and Chava were full of despair and fear because they were created on day six. And then what happens right after they're created, after they, after they eat the fruit? The world starts to get dark because it's going to be the first nightfall for humans. And they think it's because of them. He said, oh my goodness, what do we do? We destroyed the world. We took a light, a world full of light. And because we ate the fruit, we made the world dark. And it got dark. And then when they woke up in the morning and the sun rose, they said, ah, oh, right? The light, the, the light returns. We didn't destroy the world and put it into a state of darkness. And so too, as we know, one of the most healing things is the light of the morning. Because if you're like me, where you have nightmares about injustices in the world, 
you uh, toss and turn in bed with fear. I'm plagued with these types of things. Um, then you yearn for that morning light and you realize that there is hope, that there is hope and light once again. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. Um, also, I mean, we were, you were talking about how uh, all of the religions seem to count on light uh, as, as goodness. Um, and, and, you know, any, any art class you take, um, mm -hmm. ancient art, medieval art, you know, with a halo and any music, everything is pointing towards the, the light as goodness and holiness. If you're talking about religious aspects and most art in the, you know, the middle ages and Renaissance and everything were religious, was religious art. And you know anybody with goodness had it didn't matter if it was a, a representation of a Jewish person or a non-Jewish person. If it was a good person, there's always a halo of some sort around them. So the light is always that. And you know all the songs we sing about lighting. You know it's better to white light. I mean one one spiritual kind of saying or just it's better to white light one little candle than to stumble in the dark. That that kind of thing. I, I mean, there's so many songs that, and, and music that lead to that too, uh, spiritually and popularly, that's so. Love it, I love it. And it makes us want to break out in song. Light <laughs> one candle for the children of Israel. Right, that my, you know, my, my kids are always talking to Alexa. I think they're convinced Alexa's a real person, but oh, actually my Alexa just turned on, sorry. Uh, but um, and they're always talking about Peter, Paul, and Mary, and <laughs> and, and they love them, and, and, and they love that song. Um, and yeah, and I, and I love that religious art. You're exactly right. The power of the halo for the saint, for the saintly figure, and the satanic forces um, are, are are dark um, and live in that darkness. And we should think about what that's about in human psychology, not not to mention just the cultural anthropology. This this um, this notion of light. Um, and, and, and how that resonates. Or if you read these books, maybe some of you may not be into this, some of you may love these, these books about people who claim they have died and come back. And the, the common story they all share is about, uh, you know, being called towards the light, right? Being pulled towards, the, towards this light, either elevated or down a tunnel by a loved one, whatever, you know, whatever the case is. And, and so when we think of the heavenly sphere, we think of that as a, as a place of, of, uh, of, of uh, pure light. And um, yeah, so thank you for sharing. Thank you for that show. In fact, we could have shared, I probably should have shared more art in the slides that, that kind of make that point. Maybe I'll bring that next time. Hi, can you hear me? Good yeah, night. Lauren, yes, we hear you, yep. Yeah. Okay, um, so two things about it. One, light, light heals. Um, I don't know if you guys get a problem of sad season of, seasonal affective disorder. We should get it up here. Like if you looked out my window, it's a really cloudy day. So we really feel so much better. Like I almost feel like every day that we do have sunshine, I just want to run out and dance in it. Like it's just so healing. You feel so good. And if you get a few days, like if you live in a, I, I stayed with a friend in Vancouver where it rained for three, every day for three weeks. I thought I'd go out of my mind. No sunshine, just cloud. So light heals. The other thing, and I think it takes me back to your wonderful teaching last week of Adam Kadmon. So the idea of the sparks, all these sparks, and every human being and maybe every animal has these sparks. 
So it's the light within. And, and I mean, I despair. I'm a boomer. And I thought of we were going on a trajectory, you know, after the 70s, the world getting better and more kind. And it, it just didn't happen. And it's very despondent. Like, it's depressing for a boomer. But if we somehow connected everybody's spiritual spark with everyone else's spiritual spark, then we'd have more empathy, more compassion. How we get there, I don't know. Um, you can work on yourself, but how do you help others get there? How do we help the world get there? Mm. But that's just what mm. I, all I wanted to say from behind the mask. Thank you, Lauren. You know, um, it reminds me, um, if you live in Arizona, every five minutes, um, these really annoying young men knock on your door trying to sell you solar power uh, equipment. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Bless their hearts. They're 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 sweet, hardworking guys, and and I and, and I really should have given them business already. I I'm, I'm really behind the behind the trends here. But we should view ourselves as that. We want to be them in the world. What do we want to be? We want to be putting solar power out into the world, right? We have a sun inside of us, and we can power up the world through solar power, right? I mean, what, what a thought to think of ourselves as the, as the equipment on top of the roof when we go out into the world and say, how am I going to how am I going to share life with others? You know, and to your point there, Lauren, I um, we had a saying when I worked with Hillel College students, don't be interesting, be interested. Don't be interesting, be interested. They all thought to make friends, they had to be interesting. They had to dance on top of something or play some instrument or have some funny joke. They had to be interesting to be liked. But we said, actually, people will like you more if you're interested in them. You don't need to be interesting. Be interested, right? And so we say, they, they always say, well, what about people I find that aren't interested? I say, well, that's a fault in you, not in them. Everyone is interested. Everyone has sparks of holiness in them, sparks of goodness. And you can think of yourselves like having a flashlight, looking through them to find those sparks, right? Right. Our job is to, is to, is to find that. And if we can't find it, it, it it's on us. And so thinking of those sparks connecting and thinking about how that in discovering that spark in another person, something can be ignited in, in ourselves, right? Something is ignited. We don't just go out to share our solar power, right? We also go to receive, to receive the light. And in doing that as a kindness to them as well, by seeing someone else's, by, by seeing someone else's light. So um, thank you for that. Thank you for that, Lauren. Yeah, we don't have that lack of sunshine problem. <laughs> in fact, we have a big problem with young kids because in the summer, when it gets dark at like nine o'clock, they're like, I don't have to go, because they think bedtime is when it's dark. They're like, I don't have to go to bed. It's, it, it's sunny out. I'm like, it's nine o'clock at night. You should have gone to bed at seven o'clock, you know? <laughs> so so they, they so the sun is very deceiving. It's very deceiving, the sunlight. Okay, that could be a whole other uh, a whole other session is the deception of the sunlight. <laughs> yeah, in Northern Ontario, the sun doesn't go down to about 10, 10 30. Oh my goodness, that's right. that's right. So it's like yeah. very disorienting. Yes, right. Sorry for interrupting. You know, it's also a reminder that or the word for light in Hebrew is or, and or also means skin or leather. And so in the Garden of Eden, when they were naked they were, their skin was light, right, is the idea. that they, they, Their light, their bodies were emanating this kind of light. And part of this realizing their nakedness was kind of connected to this idea of a fundamental shift of how they experience their bodies and the world around them. 
I'd like to pick up on uh, Lauren's uh, mentioning the sparks. Um, there was a recent article in the Washington Post, I think it was the 11th of this month that I was quite taken with. It was talking about why New Zealand has done so well with COVID. Of course, they're small and they're an island, but they've also been working to incorporate Maori um, values into the culture and teach them. And they have this concept called manaakatanga, um, about the mana within, that spark of life. And that what is more important than your own uh, life or being is your relationship to the community and the value of the community has enabled that country for everybody together to really do what they do uh, need to do around COVID to protect everybody. So that's interesting as kind of as opposed to the cliche of American individualism. And I think in talking about the mana, it's the soul that we relate to, that spark of life, uh, the divine energy in all of us. Um, so it's an interesting concept to think about that. Obviously, we could use a little more of it in this country right now. Yes, right. Very nice, very nice. You know, this also reminds me, going back to this uh, question that some of you have, have, have grappled with and as, uh, that we've grappled with here together, is this idea of what do we do with the darkness that creeps in? And I just want to remind us of the, of the, of the, of the different approach from the Musar camp and Rev Cook. Uh, that the Musar camp believes that we can combat and push out darkness, right? We can do that. Um, there are lots of ways to do that. The, the toxicity of guilt, of fear, of memories that haunt us, of resentments, right? We all have these things um, that are sitting inside of us so, so heavily. And one side says, we can work to transform those emotions, those memories, combat them, rework them, really hard work. And Rev Cook's answer is no, no, ignore them. Ignore them, fill yourself with more light, focus on the light, run to the light, the dark, and those will automatically become diminished. They will become minimized. They will start to shrink. So we, we, can, we can try those ourselves, as I'm sure we all do, as to how to grapple with the darkness, and sometimes, and how in other times to just run towards the light. Um, for example, when we're in a state of sadness, we can just sit with that sadness. We can love that sadness. We can come to be comfortable with it, or we can go engage in something that naturally lifts us up, right? Those are different approaches to, uh, to, to, you know, to thinking about it. Yes, Carol. Um, I find <clears throat> yeah, the symbolism of light in meditation when you meditate, uh, you usually, uh, you know, the light is coming through the whatever and dust goes through your body and you, you know, well, you know how to meditate. I think most people know what regular meditation is, um, where you um, breathe and look for the light. Uh, you never say, you know, unless you're thinking you're un in it. The only time I can ever remember doing a um, meditative uh, time is uh, a shower of chocolate coming down over you <laughs> was a dark sign and I didn't like it as much as I love chocolate the idea of chocolate coming over you uh, wasn't as as invigorating to me as light coming into me or emanating from me either way so that's where you can find some where light is energizing and stimulating and soothing Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Um, that's very powerful. 
and um, and to think of that the 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 blessing and privilege of light um, that, that we have in our lives. I remember during my uh, time living in villages in um, in Africa um, uh, that doesn't have electricity um, and really doesn't even have access to much fire. Um, that we were fortunate to have brought flashlights with us where we could be awake uh, and engaged once it got dark. Um, but the, other, the, the rest of the people in the villages didn't do that. It got dark and that meant you go to sleep, right? The ability to extend light, the privilege to, to capture it and extend it um, really is a, a remarkable uh, modern idea uh, very, and, and very recent idea. Um, and yet also the darkness, as, as, as we talked last time about the blessings there, it can also soothe the soothing calm that can come with, with the absence of light as well. Um, and, yeah, and the, and the stars shining in the sky, Lauren. Yeah, and thank you, Andrea, for that point about the indigenous populations. And whoever asked about if other populations uh, start the day at night, I don't know, but that's a really interesting question also. So yeah, Carol, thank you for that. Um, thank you for that important point. Uh, you mentioned something about being interesting and not being, you know, being and being interested in other people. Um, we in my family we had a, uh, a a matriarch and a patriarch. They were older, very. They were old. They were always old. <laughs> well, I was a kid, but they were the old. They they both the husband and wife became. They were a cousin of my grandfather, so they were my grandfather's generation. But they were older than even my grandparents. And they used to have Shabbat every every Saturday. You could just go to their apartment. They lived in the Bronx in a small walk-up apartment. They were uh, German refugees, like my whole family was, and they didn't have a lot of money. And they lived with their children, so it was a large apartment with a lot of people in it. And the one thing I loved to go there, and it was dark and dingy and old furniture, and it smelled funny and. Ugh. But I love going there because the minute you sat down and there was always people there, Shabbos afternoon, you could go to the Levy's. I mean, they were there. And my mother and I used to go there. And this was not my mother's family. This was my father's family. And my mother used to take me there after we went shopping and, uh, you know, for clothes or stuff like that. They lived near a shopping area. So we used to go over there. And the first thing they would ask us is, what did you buy? Carol, you have to model for us. Show us what you bought. You know, it was always about me there. And these were really educated, very, very uh, big high, as far as I was concerned, big conversations, lots of political dialogue, uh, religious dialogue. They, they, they were just... Uh, really, and yet when you, when I went there and I was like seven, eight, 10, 12, so, you know, in that age group. And I never, my mother says, you want to go to the Levy's? Oh yeah, let's go ma. Because they always made you feel so good. Beautiful. It's so beautiful, Carol. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And that really is the gift that people have given us and that we give um, in terms of how we make people feel I think it was Maya Angelou who famously said, um, 
people won't remember your words, but how you made them feel. Um, that 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 is, uh, yeah, it's 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 incredibly powerful. And some of those we can never retrieve. You know, I often I actually just put up on my uh, I just a week ago put up a picture of my grandparents' house on my office wall uh, that I found because there's a certain feeling that comes with looking at that house and uh, and, and a feeling that was. Uh, um, yeah, that people were interested. Uh, people were interested. There, there was a warmth. There was a love. Um, yeah, and so it's, uh, in addition, Andrea, thank you for that point there about how light also created more oppressive workplaces by extending the work hours far beyond. This is, um, you know, what. so going back to the villages, one of the things that happens over there is there's, there, you'll find almost no men in these villages. Uh, some, some elderly men who are being taken care of. But... Um, but the young men have all moved to the factories in the urban centers and the women there are to take care of the property and the children. Um, but these men are all gone. Um, and so that with the advent of the factories, there was progress. There was more money flowing into these countries, but there was also um, the breakdown of the family of the family unit. And we can go on and on about, you know, factory life and what that's, what that's like as well. But yeah, anyways, Carol, thank you for that, that beautiful point there. And, you know, I'm also reminded my two-year-old son, his favorite, one of his favorite things to do with me is to chase, to chase, chase our shadows. Literally, this sweet boy, this two-year-old boy, we could spend the entire day chasing our shadows down, down the sidewalk. And when I drop him off at school in the morning, we get out of the car, and all of a sudden, he finds the shadow. And we chase the shadow to the classroom, and we make funny moves all the way to the whole parking lot. probably laughing at me because <laughs> we're dancing and doing funny things. But he just loves the, the, uh, how... Um, how the darkness, when, that, how we're blocking that light, we create that dark space below us, um, and how that is in, in our control to, to, to shape the world. It reminds me of Rabbi Nachman that he says, we should love a fellow like ourselves, um, that Reicha is actually evil, not, not, not your fellow. You should love your evil as part of yourself, that you should love your shadow, right? That there's the part of ourselves that is full of light, but we should also love our dark side, he says. Right? And by loving our dark side, by owning our dark side, we can come to shape it and mold it and, and take it out of the dark. Because friends, what happens when we leave something in the dark? We have shame. We live with shame when we live apart, when we leave a part of ourselves in the dark. When we take it out of the dark into the light, we liberate it, right? Um, think about, uh, there's so many ways to extend that, but think of things, part of ourselves that we leave in the dark. We don't talk about it. We don't want to talk about it with anyone. We keep it over there. But we, we, we remove that shame and that taboo when we allow it to come out into the light. Okay, we have time for a few more point, a few more comments. Mold and mildew in the dark, yeah. <laughs> just in being interested in others, I just thought, from my experience, both working in hospital and I also worked in the methadone clinic for a while, just listening to people makes them feel so good and, and so much more comfortable and so much more valued as a human being. I mean, some of our staff treated the methadone patients. Well, okay, some of them did just come out of jail, but you know, they're human. They had a reason behind them that they got addicted and all that. A lot of them were First Nations people who were terribly traumatized. Just listening to them and making them feel like human beings and 
you know, asking a little bit more about themselves. Yeah. That could make such beautiful. a difference. Lauren, beautiful. And Steve was talking about that last week. Um, and and um, just and just how healing that is for people to be seen and to be heard. And yes, it can be a great sacrifice to spend one's time listening to someone. Um, it, or it can be so expansive, like so expanding. And I really, the, probably epistemologically, the greatest shift in my life, I remember it happening. School was horrible. School, I got to listen, like, listen to this boring stuff and read this horrible, horrible material. And, you know, and all these people want to tell me things. And then I had this shift and I was like, oh my goodness, everything is interesting. Everyone is interesting. Everything. And it's what we call in Musar, that we can learn from everything we encounter, you know? And this was such a spiritual shift in my life. I wanted to learn about everything. I wanted to learn about art and religion and science. And, um, and, and I wanted to learn from everyone, people of different religions, young, young children and, and seniors, uh, everyone. And it is such a shift when we can be like, no, I only like these kind of books. I only like these kind of films. I'm only interested in this topic, right? Okay, we get our preferences. But when we start to find everything interesting and everyone interesting, our ability to listen and to receive can become so much greater. And our need to just constantly be talking. I, I know you're mostly used to me talking, so I'm not a very good, good example of this. Right? Uh, and my kids are often saying, okay, enough already, enough already. Right? So I'm quite aware that I'm too verbose. <laughs> but, but really, the ability to step back and listen is so, is, is, uh, is so expensive. Actually, my, uh, my wife wouldn't want me to say this. But, um, but then I say, but, right? But, you know, she recently hinted that I make, I make the dinner table a little bit too much of a curriculum, right? I'm trying to cram in these things I want to kind of, I want to kind of, she's like, listen, she said, when I was a kid, the most powerful thing about dinner was that people listened to me. People, I, I, at school, I didn't feel heard. You know, everyone's talking, uh, you know, I, I was shy, but then I'm at the, the dinner table and, and, and someone hears me, you know? So that was a very nice way of being like, stop talking so much at dinner, you know? Let the kids talk. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, I mean, yeah. What caused this change? What can you attribute it to? Oh, thank you so much for asking that. Um, and the easy answer when it comes to anything of self-knowledge is I have no idea. Because I, I am a big skeptic about self-knowledge that we tell these stories about uh, our lives, of how we went from here to there and how we realized this and that. And those narratives are fiction. I really believe they're fiction. We've kind of constructed an ordered narrative of kind of how things happened. Um, this person was at fault for this, and this person lifted me up in that way. And of course, they're partially true, but they're much more complex. That's the beautiful thing about self-discovery is we never can really understand that tapestry as to what made us who we are and, and how it continues to evolve. And yet, so I have no idea. And yet, if I were to point to something, um, I would actually point to um, uh, two things. One was uh, Judaism. My, my, my gaining a love for Judaism was gaining a love for everything because I thought Judaism was about prayer and synagogue. And of course it is that. But then I realized that Judaism is about everything. It's about life, right? Judaism inter is interwoven with all dimensions of life and society. And so when I embraced a path towards learning Jewish wisdom, I realized that it's all interconnected. It's all interconnected. These ideas of, uh, and, and facets of our life. It is a wisdom tradition which seeks to shine light on every facet of existence. So that was the first answer. <clears throat> the second was mentorship. 
Because what I found in mentorship was not just people that I could watch and be intrigued with, but people who um, for the first time were actually interested in me as me. They weren't interested in me. Oh, you're a good leader at that. So I'm interested in that, right? They weren't just interested in the role I could play in the organization. They said like, who are you? They asked me questions. And, and them being interested in me actually made me interested in me. And me being interested in me wasn't self-absorbing, but was actually realizing um, there wasn't a me. There wasn't a me. Um, and to find, to find me, I was going to have to go outwards. And so my last bit of answer within that skepticism was I rode, the tra- I rode the trains of Europe for six months. I had the privilege to do that. And I was, I was very sad on those trains. I was very sad. But in the sadness of, of those trains, um, of feeling alone, my parents had just gotten divorced. They filed for bankruptcy. I had no money, I had no family, and I was just alone in, in these trains in Europe. Nobody knew me and I didn't know them. And I just kept looking out the window, trying to figure out who I was and what. And in getting out of myself and out of my pity and looking out at the world beyond myself, I found myself. I found myself in art and culture and religion. And so it was actually realizing that the self is inter- interwoven with everything and everyone. So anyways, that's when I became a little interested. So friends, so friends, I'm sorry to cut off our time here, but um, I give you the bracha of Ma'avir. May you channel your holy flame everywhere you go as you all do so beautifully. May you continue to fuel it and allow others to fuel it and that we should never burn out. And when we do, we should continue to fuel and realize that it is infinite. There is infinite light. There is eternal light. It is there waiting for us to light up the world, light up our souls and light up the souls around us to be a source of hope and of faith and of progress love for others around us. Have a beautiful day. Can't wait to see you from Malacha 38 next week. You're all so great for giving me the gift to pretend like I know something.